God is in control, <laughs> but if there's ever been a year that felt like it was out of control, would it not have been the last 12, 13 months or so we've endured? If nothing else, we have learned that the, the physical world, viruses, etc., that, that's not under our control, is it? In fact, if we looked at the weather the past few weeks, we could see even further evidence of that. I saw somebody shared on Facebook or one of those things, uh, one Tuesday in Kansas City, it was about 10 below zero. The next Tuesday in Kansas City, 70 degrees, right? We can't get COVID-19 perfectly under control. We're working at it. We definitely don't have control over the weather. We sure know that in this part of the world. This physical creation, this natural world, it is out of our control. Even with all the technology, even with all the knowledge we have available to us, we just can't get it under our thumb. Did you know that the Bible explains why that is? It didn't begin all out of control, did it? God created the heavens and the earth. There were no viruses. There were no natural disasters. No droughts. Can I get an amen from the farmers? Adam and Eve worked the ground. Plant life flourished. But then something happened, right? Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They were tempted by the fallen angel Satan. And the created world suffered the consequences of life in a world with sin present in it. In fact, as we just sang, God says the natural world is cursed because of sin. Here's what God told Adam. He said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. That from Genesis chapter 3. The natural world, the physical world around us is under a curse. We've been looking for ways to solve that problem ever since with no luck, hoping that maybe somebody would be raised up and figure out how to reverse the curse. It's interesting to read just two chapters later in Genesis chapter five, people were already hoping that one would be raised up to undo the curse. It says in Genesis 5, 28 and 29, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. You've heard of him, I think. Here's what his father hoped for Noah, his son. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah's father hoped his son would be the deliverer who would deliver people from the pain of the curse. And certainly he had a big part to play in God's 
agenda, but the curse goes on, does it not? For us in the modern world, we've invented machines, medicine, computers, educational systems, the internet, on and on it goes. Many of those things good, right? Hopefully this vaccine works, right? It's, it's a good thing that we have medication that helps and so on and so forth. But nobody, no thing, has been able to bring the natural world, the physical world around us, under control and fix the sin problem. Relief from the curse of sin has not happened yet. That's what makes this morning's passage so great. We're going to study Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, if you want to turn there in your Bible. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. As you're turning there, let me just quickly review the Gospel of Matthew up to this point. The Gospel of Matthew is a presentation of Jesus as the king, the king whom God promised in the Old Testament, the one who would establish God's kingdom on the earth. So in chapters one through four, we see Jesus' credentials as the king, the genealogy, that's not boring, that shows he fulfills the profile of the king, shows his, his miraculous birth, his early life ministry and preaching. Then in chapters 5 through 7, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives that, that great section of teaching which explains what it looks like to be a member of the kingdom with Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew display the power of Jesus the King in healings and miracles. To put it another way, we see the power of Jesus' teaching in chapters 5 through 7, and in chapters 8 and 9, we see the power of Jesus' works. So Jesus, at this point, the, the passage we're going to look at, at this point, he's leaving large crowds that he's been teaching, and he's going to cross the Sea of Galilee, and we're going to see one of those miraculous, powerful displays of uh, his power. So follow with me, Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even winds and sea obey him. This story ought to encourage our faith and our hope. 
There is one who has power even to make the winds and sea obey him. There is one who can bring the physical world, the natural realm, under control. There's one who can bring relief from the curse of sin. There is one for whom COVID-19 is no match. He rules over it. I want you to see that this morning. And to see that, I want you to walk with me through this passage. Here's the outline if you want to write this down. We're going to look at the details of this event. We're going to look at the desperation of this event. And then we're going to look at the deliverance Jesus accomplished. The details, the desperation, the deliverance. So first we get the details in verses 23 and 24. It says, Jesus got into a boat and his disciples followed him. Now this isn't talking about just the 12 disciples. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 4, we find out there were other boats along with the boat that Jesus was in. So there could be 30 or 40 of uh, people who are following along here. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus was asleep. So here's the scene. I want you to put yourself in this scene. Get the details. Jesus and those who are willing to come along with him are crossing the Sea of Galilee in a fishing boat. They're starting from Capernaum, which is on the north side of, of the Sea of Galilee. They're going to a spot more on the southeast side of the sea. And it's probably nighttime. Jesus has been busy doing ministry, teaching crowds, even standing in a boat to teach those who are gathered on the shore to hear him speak. So it's dark. You're out on the water. And by the way, the Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level. People compare it to like a, a teacup. It's about 13 miles long, eight and a half miles wide. So if a storm arises, you can't see it. In fact, that was pretty common for that to happen. You don't have Gary Lezak warning you. You don't have the StormTrack 5 app on your smartphone. You're just below sea level in this teacup, uh, this body of water, and a storm can get on you pretty fast. And that's exactly what happened. The words here, it says, a great storm arose. Uh, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I think you and I can both understand this. The Greek words for great storm are megas, seismos. So you get the point. This isn't a storm like what we're having today. This is more like a natural disaster. It's seismic. It's mega. It's scary. It's very severe. The winds would be whipping out of control. The, the waves, it says, envelop or, or swamp the boats that these men are in. By the way, the, the boat was... It was not like a, a boat we would have nowadays. It was a fishing boat. There was one found in the Sea of Galilee in 1986. It's about 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide. It's, it's open. There's no cover. 
There's about 10 or 15 people that could fit on it. So, so that's the scene. It's a, a wooden fishing boat. It's not very big. It's not covered. And the, the waves are just, there's walls of water surrounding these people. Terrifying. By the way, what was the occupation of some of Jesus' followers? They're fishermen. And they're scared. They've made their living on this water. And yet this storm is so bad, they're freaking out. But there's one person on the boat that is not freaking out. Jesus. What's he up to? He's asleep. My wife has told me, you can sleep through anything. And now I can tell her this morning, it's a very Christ-like thing (laughs) to be able to sleep through anything. This speaks to a great mystery, does it not? Here is the one. We just read the whole story. We, We know what's coming. He's about to display his power as God the Son and bring the natural, physical realm under his power. And yet he needs to sleep, showing that he took on in his earthly life and ministry the limitations of being human. And he's sleeping so good that even this mega seismos does not wake him. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 16. Let me just read that to you. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus was tired. He knows what that feels like. He's experienced being human, weaknesses and all, and offers us help to endure. And people often wonder, how how was Jesus able to sleep in such a mega seismos. How was he able to sleep? And obviously one answer to that question is he was very tired. He had been ministering to people. I mean, you, you've read the Gospels. Jesus is pouring himself out in ministry to people. Even he's trying to get away from crowds and they still come and find him. He's tired. So that's one answer to the question. But there's something else here that we would overlook. I know I have in reading this passage Often in the Bible, and especially in the Psalms, sleep is contrasted with anxiety and fear, right? Have you ever laid awake in bed at night, things running through your mind? Well, hear what Psalm 127 verse 2 says. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Amen. (laughs) How about Psalm 3, verses 5 and 6? I lay down and slept. 
I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. The picture is of thousands of people surrounding the psalmist, and yet he is able to sleep instead of being fearful. Why is that? The Lord sustained me. So sleep is actually kind of here a symbol of faith. The absence of anxiety and fear and the presence of faith. So Jesus isn't just tired. He's also the perfect model of entrusting one's life to the care of his heavenly father. Often we read in the gospels where Jesus says, especially the gospel of John, it's not my time. My time has not yet come. And so he ain't scared of this mega seismos because he knows my time hasn't come. I'm perfectly cared for by my heavenly father. And he's the one in Psalm 127 verse four, the one who keeps Israel, who neither slumbers nor sleeps. Appropriate sleep is a display of faith in the one who does not sleep. But Jesus was the only one in the boat doing that, right? Everybody else, quite the opposite. They're in a state of panic and desperation. And that's the second part of the story that we are going to look at now. The desperation of this event. Look again at verse 25 and the first part of verse 26. Those in the boat with Jesus, they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, We're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? You know what point these guys are at? It's a point that maybe you've been at before. They are fresh out of man-made human solutions to their problem. You ever been there? There's no using buckets to get water out of the boat, There's no swimming to the shore. They're miles in. There's no waiting it out. They're expecting to die. And they're panicked and desperate. So they wake up Jesus, hoping maybe he could do something about it. And Jesus says they have little faith. So it's not that they have no faith But really what's happening is that they are so desperate and there's nothing else they can think of that maybe Jesus can do something about it. But remember what they told them. We are perishing. They didn't say we might. They're like, we're dying. We're going down. Doesn't this touch on our human experience at times? Fresh out of man-made solutions and then what do we do? We pray. We should have started with prayer, but unfortunately, we have thick skulls, spiritually speaking, and often it takes us getting to this point that then we turn to the Lord in prayer. How about for those of you farmers? Are you not nervous on a weekend like this that we're going to get all the rain now and then come summer? (laughs) You remember back in, was it 2012? 
What do you do when your ponds are empty, the crops ain't growing, there's nothing more, humanly speaking, you can do? What do you do? You're desperate. You're out of human solutions. There's nothing you can do to fix it. And we turn to God. By the way, just as uh, uh, an aside here, that's the way salvation works as well. You have to come to the point where you realize you cannot fix your sin problem. You have no human solution. Your works, your rituals can't do it. And you're desperate and you turn away from your sin towards Jesus Christ and faith. And guess what? Sometimes God, because he loves us, brings us to that very point. And I said that intentionally. God brings us, not that he allows it or maybe he permits, God brings us to that point. After all, in this event, in this passage, these men didn't know the storm was coming. It was unforeseen to them. But who did see it coming? Who was the one who told them, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. Who's the one that's asleep because he's not worried about it? This is intentional. Jesus is bringing these men to this point because he wants to teach them something. And often when we're fresh out of human solutions to our problems, God teaches us some of his most valuable lessons, does he not? Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe it's the fear of COVID that's overwhelming you. Maybe it's the fear of the direction our country is going in that's overwhelming you. I don't know what it is. Fill in the blank. It's out of your control, and the fear is overwhelming you. There's no apparent human fix Jesus has something to say to that. And I think his voice, by the way, is very gentle. I don't think it's a frustrated, harsh tone. Here's a loving teacher. And he's asking you, why are you afraid? And then he kind of gives the answer, does he not? Oh, you of little faith. That's the lesson. And I'm not sure how it played out. It's possible that Jesus asks that question while the storm is still going, while the waves are still enveloping that little fishing boat. But you know why they were afraid. And you know why we're fearful as well. It's that we don't get who it is that is in the boat with us. We have such little faith because we don't really get who he is. These men, they were in the boat with the one through whom all things in the natural world, the wind and the sea included, were made. They were in the boat with the one who would go to the cross and pay the penalty for their sin and 
be raised on the third day, defeating Satan, sin, and death. It's our lack of faith in who he is that allows our fears and our anxieties to take control. God forbid that we have another drought this summer, but if we do, who is the one who's in charge of the rain? Does he care for you? God forbid there's another COVID outbreak, but who sits enthroned above it and says, it can go this far and no further in my world? You see, it's in those moments of desperation that our true level of faith is revealed and the faith of Jesus' true disciples gets stronger. But I also at the same time want you to understand as soon as I say that, (laughs) this story is not mostly about trusting Jesus to get me out of the storms of my life. That's how we're tempted to read this. That's how I've heard sermons. Oh, Jesus calmed the storm. He's gonna calm the storm in your life. Let me be frank. God forbid, but you could die of COVID. God forbid, but there could be a drought this summer. The storm in your life, he may not make it go away. But this event, this passage of scripture is about who Jesus is and why he is worthy of complete faith even when the storm doesn't calm. And that's displayed in the deliverance that he accomplished. Look again at the the last part of verse 26 and also in verse 27. Then Jesus rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. By the way, the word great there is also megas. It's a total reversal. There was mega seismos, now there's megas calm. This is a complete redemption, complete deliverance. Verse 27, and the men marveled, saying, this is the point, by the way, of the whole thing, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? What an awesome scene, isn't it? That immediately when Jesus rebukes the winds and the sea, immediately there's a great calm. It doesn't say that it gradually died down, but immediately he says the word and the lake is glass. The wind is perfectly still. Perfect harmony, perfect tranquility. Just as God spoke all the world into existence, so Jesus speaks the word and brings the natural, physical world under control. Jesus does what only God can do. Because What sort of man is this? 
By the way, that's a, that's a really significant word here, rebukes. Jesus rebuked the wind of the wind. That's a really important word. If you trace that through the gospel of Matthew, you'll see that that word is also used when Jesus cast out demons or when Jesus heals someone of a disease, he rebukes that disease. So all the problems in the world caused by sin, whether it be demonic activity, whether it be disease, whether it's natural disasters or problems in the physical world, Jesus has authority over them all. The problems that people have tried for so long to solve, Jesus alone has the power to fix them. He is the only one who can can completely remove the penalty, power, and presence of sin from the world. We can't stop it. We can't cure it. We can't remove it. We can't reverse it. This world is cursed because of sin. And there's only one who can deliver us from that curse. Let me just say here, just for practical consideration, it's fine if you do, but driving a Toyota Prius won't save the environment. Thank God we have it, but medicine won't cure the soul. Thank God for godly representatives and leaders in Washington the better political system won't solve it, lift it. Only Jesus can. And he does so here with just a word. When he returns, he will reign over all. He will make all things new. And there will no longer be any trace of sin, Satan, or death because the curse will be undone. By the way, the the fact that Jesus spoke the word and nature obeyed is a preview of that coming reality. This is a preview. Notice how the the people responded to Jesus. Whenever he speaks the word, he shows his power. It says the men marveled and they asked the question. This is the question. Here in a moment I'm going to press you to ponder. What sort of man is this? In Mark's gospel it says not only did they marvel, but they were filled with great fear. So they were afraid of the the power of the storm, but then they saw Jesus as more powerful than that storm, and then they were really afraid because what sort of man is this? Who, Who is he? He is the one who is God in human flesh. He is the king who will establish God's kingdom on earth. He is the one who, upon his return, will say the word, I am making all things new, and the curse will be lifted. He is the one who is completely worthy of your faith, even if the drought comes, even if COVID 
breaks out again. I want to finish this message by applying this story in a couple of ways. One is to encourage you to answer that question in your own heart. Not the Sunday school answer, but in your own heart. What sort of man is this? Who is he really? I'm not asking if you agree with what your parents said about it. I'm not not asking what your grandparents said, what your church says, what you would say in Sunday school. Who do you perceive Jesus to be? Because when you see him for who he is, you cannot help but be gripped in amazement and awe. And in your amazement and awe, you trust his solutions to your sin and the effects that it has in your life. So I want you to ponder that question in your heart. What sort of man is this? Who is he really? And then second, I want you to ponder Jesus' question. Why are you afraid? And I want you to make a list. I'm serious. This isn't a journal, guys, or a diary. But sit down with a piece of paper and a pencil. Is that still allowed, or do you have to use the smartphone or a laptop now? I don't know. But I want you to make a list. What keeps you up at night? What gets your blood pressure elevated? What anxiety does your mind drift towards when you're just kind of driving down the road and you know how your mind wanders? Maybe consider your response to COVID. Consider your response to what I just read about the other day, the the Equality Act that's being proposed. Consider your response to those things that seem out of control and chaotic to you. I had somebody just recently admit to me, uh, they said, I have high blood pressure. And you know what my nurse told me to do? I said, well, what's that? Watch Fox News a little bit less. <laughs> right? And I laugh too, but, but let's think about this seriously. What does that response say about your faith in the Lord Jesus? As you're making that list, here's what I'm keeping me up. Here's the what ifs. What does that say about your faith in the Lord Jesus? There are times in the Gospels where Jesus says, you have no faith. There's times like here he says, oh, you have little faith. And then there are rare occasions. That should tell us something that they're rare when Jesus says, now that's great faith. What do your fears and anxieties say about your faith? What do they say? As you review that list, what do they say about how small you think Jesus is? So you're you're making a list of all your fears and anxieties, kind of doing some introspection, but then make a second column. Here's what I want you to put in that column. Why is Jesus worthy of my faith in That, whatever that is, that fear, that anxiety. Another way to maybe ask it, how does my knowledge of Jesus' greatness and power address this fear? And the reason I want you to do that is because when we're confident in who Jesus really is, we will not be overcome by fear and anxiety.
That's the lesson Jesus wanted the disciples to get here. Why are you afraid? And then he gives the answer, oh, you of little faith. Yes, I assume that you, as I know I will be, we will be tempted to fear and anxiety. But literally and figuratively, we will sleep better at night, won't we? Especially when it's not daylight savings. When we really see who he is. And this is so significant because until he returns, you and I will continue to experience the curse of sin in the natural world all the time, won't we? Anybody's arthritis flared up recently? Pressure change? I've got allergies. It's going to be allergy season. Are the tornado sirens going to go off? You've got to run into your basement. Viruses will happen. Droughts will happen. The curse of sin continues. But those are reminders to us. Even though this world is still under the curse, that we need to strengthen our faith in who the Lord Jesus is. And the more we experience the curse of sin in this world, the more we should pray that prayer from the end of Revelation. You know that prayer at the end of Revelation? It's three words. Come, Lord Jesus. And then in the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come. Because that's when relief from the curse of sin on the natural, physical world will come. Praise King Jesus that we're looking forward to that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this this message is both a challenge to my heart and an encouragement to my heart. I trust it will be for for each of us listening this morning. And I pray, Father, that you would reveal in our hearts those fears, those anxieties that maybe have, have gripped us, that have revealed that lack of faith. And I'm asking you, Father, to give us a clearer vision of who Jesus really is. Speak to us through your word and by your Holy Spirit, revealing to us who this great king is. I pray, Father, that as we view our fears and anxieties in the light of his greatness, that though tempted, we would be able to overcome our fears because of our faith. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all praise, all honor, now and throughout all eternity. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen.